Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Koka. One thing that's helped some of us get through the last two years has been finding joy in food. Maybe swapping treats with our neighbors, taking on cooking projects, or eating our feelings. Or like me, discovering new ways to take a little snack break and bring some delight into my day. I've been making myself more Indian black tea and eating one of my favorite childhood foods, parantas, for a mid-morning snack. Specifically, muli parantas, which are a wheat flatbread stuffed with grated radish. It's something my Punjabi grandmother used to make. Spoon a little bit of yogurt. Mmm. Delicious. Today on our show, stories about food. Food that brings us comfort. Food that makes us happy. From a kitchen in the back of a Hmong grocery store in Yuba County. Crab, shrimp paste, uh, the fish, anchovy, all that mixed together. To a sizzling hot dish invented here in California that's a mishmash of foods from different countries. The concoction, how did he build that concoction? Recently, my colleague Aditi Bandlamudi ate a dish that so delighted and confused her that she found herself on a journey to trace its wild origin story. It's a journey that led her across the world and then back here to California, to the Bay Area, where she's KQED's Silicon Valley reporter. One night a few months ago, my husband, Shesha Gandhi, announced that we were going to the South Bay to eat Indian sizzlers for dinner. I figured he had misspoken. Maybe he meant to say samosas or Szechuan food. But no, he meant to say sizzlers. Now, I should probably point out that my husband and I are both Indian, but Sheshav was born and brought up in Mumbai. He moved to the United States about six years ago. I, on the other hand, was born and raised in the U.S. But I grew up eating Indian food. My mom would make dishes from Andhra Pradesh, Tamil Nadu, Gujarat, and Punjab. Growing up here, I knew there would be gaps in my cultural understanding of India, but I never thought food would be a place I would come up short. So we get to the South Bay, Milpitas to be exact, and we enter Milan Sweet Center. It's the small restaurant tucked away in a strip mall of Indian clothing stores and threading salons. And while Milan Sweets is known for their sweets, Janan Gandhi, Sheshav's best friend, said we had to try their sizzlers. I would describe a sizzler as a hot, steamy plate, on top of which you can find uh, all kinds of veggies, rice, even pasta. Okay, I should stop right here and explain exactly what a sizzler is. 
At its base, there's a bed of grains, whether that's noodles, rice, or pasta. On top of that are grilled vegetables, usually an assortment of onions, bell peppers, sometimes zucchini, and cubes of paneer, all mixed together in a tangy sauce. On top of that, fresh, thinly sliced cabbage and carrots, kind of like coleslaw mix. Finally, some shredded cheese. And it all comes out on the steaming hot platter. The whole thing smokes up the room and crackles as it comes towards the table. I was overwhelmed as it approached me. The sizzler I got had pasta mixed in a kind of red vodka cream sauce with giant samosas on top of it. It was confusing because I know all of these elements separately, but together, it felt like a fever dream. How did this dish come to be? And why? And again, how? To track down this origin story, I went to the obvious place to start, the internet. I scoured Indian food blogs and articles and was eventually able to piece together a sort of lore that exists around the sizzler. And it starts in California. Sometime in the 1960s, Indian businessman Firoz Irani was on a trip in California, not exactly sure where, when he visited a Sizzler steakhouse. Remember those? Sizzler brings the choices that you've been looking for. At that time, Sizzler steakhouses were known for serving their steak on a sizzling platter that smoked up the whole room and made a big scene. Irani saw this and was entranced. He came back to Mumbai and went to work creating his version of a sizzler. A few years later, in 1967, he opened up the Sizzler restaurant in a ritzy part of the city and sold allegedly the first Indian sizzler. Grilled meat or vegetables on top of a bed of rice or pasta, or both, mixed in a special sauce and served on a steaming hot platter. According to legend, after Irani opened the Sizzler in Mumbai, his son Shahrukh eventually took over the business and opened another restaurant in India. From there, other families took the idea and ran with it. The two largest, most famous restaurant chains are Yoko Sizzlers and Kobe Sizzlers. According to my husband Sheshav and our friend Janan, the dish really took off in the 1990s and early 2000s. Yoko and Kobe Sizzler chains had spread throughout India, and around that time, the Indian middle class was growing, and more people could afford to eat at restaurants. Sizzlers were still considered a luxury food at the time. Sheshav remembers eating his first Sizzler at a rich friend's birthday party. And they had, like, sectioned off a part of the restaurant. His, like, dad had this, like, DSLR camera and stuff. So, so even for that time, it's like, he was, like, obviously, like, well off. <laughs> Eventually, the Sizzler gained international popularity as Indians immigrated to other countries and brought their food with them. I talked to Ryan Rizvi, who manages the Yoko Sizzler restaurants in the Middle East. He's based out of Dubai and has been tinkering with the Sizzler recipe to fit the local palate. Because if you have our original sauces in India, they would be a little more spicy than what we have here in Dubai. This alleged history explains why someone like me, who was born in the U.S., wouldn't know about Sizzlers, while Sheshev and Janan grew up eating them. When my parents immigrated in the late 80s, they didn't know about the Sizzler because it wasn't popular enough. But in areas with a lot of recent Indian immigrants, like Edison, New Jersey, Detroit, Dallas, the San Francisco Bay Area, you can find Sizzler joints all over the place. I did reach out to Sizzler USA, 
the company behind the steakhouse chain, to see if they knew about any of this. Forbes Collins, the company's historian, said Sizzler was aware Indian restaurants were selling something called the Sizzler. But when I described the dish Firoz Irani created in the 1960s... The concoction. How did he build that concoction? He must have gotten the idea of the sizzling platter from us, right? But it wasn't just the platter Collins took issue with. He says Sizzler USA had a run-in with a restaurant in Florida. In Orlando, I saw a restaurant named the Sizzler Indian Cuisine. We weren't happy they were using our name, and we tried to stop. The marketing department got involved. I wasn't involved in it. But as far as Collins knows, nothing happened. Nothing. Nothing happened. I have no idea if it's so that we didn't do anything to them. Milan Sweets, back in Milpitas, that restaurant Jenna and Sheshev and I were at, doesn't mention the word Sizzlers in its name, but it's known Bay Area-wide for them. Here's Sanjay Patel, the owner, describing all their varieties. Chinese Sizzlers, um, Hawaiian Crispy Sizzlers, Manchurian Sizzlers, Kebab Sizzlers, which are made with paneer. Sanjay's uh, dad, Mukund, opened the restaurant in 1996 after moving here from England, where Sanjay was born. Milan Sweets originally served traditional Indian vegetarian food. But Sanjay, an award-winning chef, wanted to try something a little different. So I had a lot of excitement inside me. I've got this new country that is fresh to new ideas. Once he got to the U.S., he started working on the Sizzler. And to sell the idea to an Indian-American audience, the Sizzler would have to adapt. Indian people love ketchup on everything that they eat. I kind of like studied, broke down what a ketchup is to try and create a sauce that has that tanginess that I can add some cream to so that it creates a sauce that's similar to a vodka sauce or at least a creamy marinara sauce. That's what he tosses his pasta in, which serves as the base layer for his samosa sizzler. Let's do the samosa sizzler and the um, Hawaiian crispy. And the verdict? Mmm. You like it? It's so like sensory overload sometimes. <laughs> Approaching this thing is a bit of a task. I found taking a little bit of pasta and breaking up the samosa was the easiest way to go. It has this sort of like creamy yeah. sauce to it. It's like really good. Since having my first Sizzler, I find myself craving it on the regular. There's something poetic about it too, how the idea traveled from California to India, all the way across the world to the Middle East, to England and back to California. You taste familiar ingredients paired together in an unfamiliar way, and the result is unexpectedly harmonious. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. If only we as humans could just do as the Sizzler does, complement each other's cultures and embrace the contradictions. For The California Report, I'm Aditi Bandlamudi, still eating that Sizzler. If you didn't get enough Sizzler, you can read more about the dish and see pictures at californiareport.org. And now we're going to head to Yuba County. On the edge of the town of Marysville, there's this strip mall. Some of the windows are covered with paintings of bright bowls of noodles, papaya salad, woks. The market name is Pong Yu Lee's Market. This is Koo Lee. It's translated in my language. It's called Friendly's Market. 
I'm not sure we're friendly, but we try to. <laughs> Ku is Hmong, and she was born in Laos. Her store's shelves are bursting with ingredients for all kinds of Asian food. Their inventory would rival Asian grocery stores in big cities. On this side, we have all different kind of coconut milk. Four shelves just of coconut milk and four more shelves of hot sauces. A whole corner of the store is dedicated to rice, an entire aisle to noodles. These noodles for the pad thai noodle or the pho. If you wind your way through the candy aisle, you'll find a small bustling kitchen in the back corner. And that's where Koo does the cooking for the store's small restaurant. For her series California Foodways, reporter Lisa Morehouse tells us about becoming a fan of the dishes made here and appreciating the woman behind them even more. On a road trip about five years ago, I was driving down Highway 99 around lunchtime when I found Lee's Market and the little restaurant in the back. I've probably visited 10 times since then, bringing friends, eating down the menu, and chatting with Koo Lee in the kitchen. When I arrived this time, she's prepping to-go dishes. In this bowl is uh, my frying, deep-fried chicken leg quarter. And I'm packing that one with the sticky rice for $6. Other options with sticky rice, spicy Lao sausage, ribs. This is a steamed fish. This is Lao style. Stuffed with spicy pepper, cilantro, dill, lime leaves, ginger, garlic. Who is so busy, I have to interview her while she cooks. There's been a stream of in-person and phone customers since I came in at noon. And Ku tells me she and her helper, Nana, prepared 60 or 70 takeout items this morning, and they're already sold out. This part right here I'm making, we call the kubong, is the chicken curry soup go with the noodle. A curry she made last night after customers were gone. It took almost uh, three hours just to do the paste. I slow cook my curry paste, and after uh, so long, then you have you got all this red, yummy stuff right here. It will last her a couple of days. I asked her to describe the types of cuisine on the menu. I think we had a combination of Thai, Laos, and Hmong food that we serve here. We live in Laos and we, we share Laos food. And Laos and Thailand share a border. Laos and Thai are similar. They are almost like families. A lot of what people in the U.S. think of as Thai food originated in Laos or is cooked by Lao chefs. Because I guess Thai are more, I, I'm not sure popular is the word, but it's because they are more well-known, not too many people know Hmong. She says traditional Hmong food is more home cooking. Dishes like pork ribs with mustard greens and chicken with herbs like mugwort and Okinawa spinach. We eat a lot of Lao and Thai food too. Lee's Market is a family affair. Over the years, I've met her son working the front counter. Today, it's her husband. It just keep us both on our feet all day long. A few of her 10 grandchildren poke their heads in to say hi. Hey, beautiful. Or deliver a phone order. Thank you. 
This granddaughter, Koo tells me, likes to pose and dance. My grandson. Where are you going? Oh my. Her grandson cries when he sees this strange white lady holding a microphone. <laughs> he goes, what is going on? I thought I want to see my grandma. Koo reaches a paddle into one of the 20-cup rice cookers she uses to keep her steamed, sticky rice warm. She squeezes a bit in her palm and hands it to him. Oh, that's too much in your mouth. <laughs> and it soothes him. I don't know. I've been eating sticky rice in my whole life. Back, back when I was my childhood, we don't even have anything to eat with the sticky rice. Just a hot sauce and sticky rice. Because she grew up in the middle of a civil war. I, I was born... Um, not exactly know the month, but it was 1967. But I was born in the uh, difficult time where we have to escape from place to place. The people of Laos, including Hmong, were deeply divided between communist leaders and those loyal to the royal family. North and South Vietnamese military forces participated in the fighting too, and Laos became a Cold War battleground between the United States and the Soviet Union. The CIA recruited and trained 30,000 Laotians, mostly Hmong, to fight communists. And in covert missions, the U.S. dropped 2 million tons of cluster bombs on parts of Laos. And I was born in the most popular hometown, Longjing, for the Hmong people. And then we keep moving, moving, moving. I know my dad's in the military for the CIA. He's a soldier. But Ku is hesitant to talk too much about the past. I don't want to go into that story because I might say it wrong because a lot of people out there, they know a lot. You were also a little girl. I'm just a little girl. I don't know much about it. She does remember there was only a little food, that sticky rice and hot sauce. Or soup, like mustard green soup and regular rice. All sweet would be like sugar cane, papaya, sweet potato. When the communists won the war in 1975, Ku's family, like a full quarter of the country, became refugees. Because my dad's in the military or the soldier, he can't stay in Laos no more or else they're gonna took him and uh, they took a lot of people and they never come back. Ku was eight or nine when her family went to a refugee camp in Thailand. Originally, the family moved to Michigan. In the 80s, she got married, came to California, and started her own family. Her husband's brothers owned stores like this one in Fresno and Sacramento, and so the couple decided to open Lee's Market in Marysville. We chose here because there is Hmong population here and not too many market here. At the time, refugee resettlement policy was to disperse Hmong people all over the U.S., sometimes in small towns, away from others in their community. But many families later moved closer to each other, to places like Detroit, Merced, and Stockton, for support. And Hmong neighborhoods grew in agricultural places like the Sacramento Valley, too. Ku had no intention of serving made-to-order food at Lee's Market. At first, she just wanted a little kitchen to prep some takeout food, like sausage and sticky rice. But word of mouth spread, and Ku expanded her menu and put in some seating. 
At first, it was more like the Hmong population, the the Cambodia population. But right now, it become everybody's store. Hi, how are you? A longtime customer named Alexis Heflin places an order, and Ku asks, "How spicy?" And they want not too spicy, not too sour. Some people they will tell me exactly how they want it. But this is not like you make a hamburger that everything is just put the same thing. Uh, we do per customer requesting. Like this papaya salad. <laughs> Ku begins to pound ingredients in a mortar and pestle, beginning with tomatoes and a sauce. Crab, shrimp paste, uh, the fish, anchovy, all that mixed together. Then salt, sugar, garlic, pepper, and peanuts. And what I'm just grabbing right now is a green papaya. Which she shredded last night to have ready for today. I know her for a long time, so I know she likes my papaya. I have to get that every time I come. Alexis is here with her sister, Haley. We've been coming here since we're like five, and I'm 16, she's 20 now, yeah. Alexis has had papaya salad at other places, but it doesn't compare to Koo's, the one she grew up on. She puts a special touch in it. <laughs> so this one goes to my lab. Oh, I always get the trifecta. You gotta have the beef lob, the papaya salad, and sticky rice. That's, that's the holy trinity right there. <laughs> Bryce Moody has been a loyal customer of Koo's for more than 15 years. We've watched each other's kids grow up. He says when his sons were really small, they weren't interested in trying these dishes. So he'd pick up fast food for them before stopping at Lee's Market. I'd eat, you know, the food here and they'd eat their Happy Meal. But Bryce says now they're hooked on Koo's cooking too. When Koo was a child, she never would have believed that food would be her livelihood. I'm like a tomboy playing with my brother, and so I wasn't paying attention to cooking. I wasn't a good girl like how my mom wanted. I'm a naughty girl. I play like a boy. I, you had an independence. I'm so independent myself. <laughs> and with that, Ku is done talking about herself. She brings me an order of delicious kapoon, that chicken noodle curry, and turns back to the stove to take care of all of the orders coming in. For the California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in Marysville. Every April for the past couple years, KQED, where we produce the California Report, has been handing over the mic to teens so they can share what's on their minds. Today, we're going to hear from Clara Chu as part of our Youth Takeover Week. She's a junior at Woodside High, and she's learning how to balance her own identity with the pressures of high school. As I reread the sentence I've just written, my eyes tear apart the letters at their seams. Words dangle uselessly like misplaced modifiers. Empty cliches packaged together in an attempt at insight. With the decisive execution of a keystroke, my mistakes are wiped from existence. I'm back to staring at the impassive, unrelenting blankness of the screen before me. Its blankness, it seems, is a testament to my incompetence. Next to me, my classmates are working busily. Their fingers hammer out paragraphs with ease. What am I even doing in this class? How have I managed to scrape by, day after day? I'm wearing a mask. 
Not one that protects me from germs, but one that shields me from scrutiny. But it's slipping, and soon, it's going to reveal the fraud behind it. I've always carried the seed of doubt in the back of my mind. It's not uncommon, especially among people my age. Imposter syndrome. A sense of failure or fraudulence. A sense that your accomplishments are not your own, but instead, a lucky throw of the dice. Imposter syndrome can appear in the workplace, relationships, and social media. For me, these symptoms are exacerbated by academic pressures. In elementary school, I always felt the pressure to succeed based on my race. I was supposed to be that stereotypical, quiet Chinese kid. When I entered middle school, I measured my success based on the achievements of my older sister, Emma. When I spoke to her about this, she said that as the oldest sibling, she felt a different side of that pressure, the pressure of setting standards. So first of all, you're kind of expected to be a role model and set a good example for the younger siblings. And at the same time, since you're the parent's first child, they're also always pushing you to be better. And I feel like a lot of that overlaps with imposter syndrome because they're both about keeping up a certain appearance or some reputation of capability. But this pressure we feel doesn't just come from having siblings. So I asked Emma, where does she think it comes from? I feel like, especially growing up in the Bay Area, there's a really big college culture where you're expected to do well, get good grades, get into a good college. So I think there definitely is that academic pressure to succeed. It's true. I've lived in the Bay Area my whole life, but even I've been intimidated by its heightened reputation. It's a stomping ground for tech companies and corporations. A place where just living is expensive. And it has a billion dollar education industry. Private tutors, standardized test prep, all aimed at pushing kids into college. Back in high school, it was always just kind of get into a good college and then you'll be set, with not a lot of thought as to what comes after. And for me, as a junior in high school, that hasn't changed much. I'm confronted with the college application process everywhere I go. It's the biggest obstacle looming in my future. But aside from figuring out my future, the application process has aggravated my sense of identity. Being accepted or rejected by a college can feel like a statement of my self-worth. Suddenly, activities I once enjoyed seem dull, routine. I feel like I'm choosing to do things based on how it will look to a college admissions committee. Am I wasting my time on a subject I probably won't pursue in the future? Am I really taking this class because I enjoy it or because it looks good to a college? Maybe I shouldn't be here, taking up a spot that someone else deserves. Maybe I really am a fraud, hiding behind all these labels, trying to prove that yes, I am successful. It's difficult to ignore these thoughts, Emma says, but it's even trickier to know how to navigate them. I definitely still do experience imposter syndrome. I feel it's something that doesn't go away. You just learn how to deal with it. But I feel like I learned to focus more on myself and my own interests rather than trying to think about what other people are doing or comparing myself to them. And that's helped me stay more grounded. I realized that that's what I've been doing, basing my standards on someone else's. And my sister's right. Imposter syndrome never really goes away. But I can't keep wasting my energy worrying about what I can't control. Instead, I can use that energy to pursue what makes me happy. Success is individual. It isn't quantifiable by some universal measurement. And oftentimes, you can only look at success through a rearview mirror, only seeing how far you've come, 
once you're a good distance away. For the California Report, I'm Clara Chu. Clara Chu is a high school junior at Woodside High, and she's a member of KQED's Youth Advisory Board. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our producer-director is Susie Racho. Brendan Willard is our engineer, and our team also includes Amanda Font and Izzy Bloom. Special thanks this week to Amanda Vigil, Emiliano Villa, and KQED's youth media team. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.